As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command. Love each other. Our second reading is taken from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 to 16. And we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same things those churches suffered from the Jews, who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to everyone in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Might like to keep that open. Uh, right there on page six, I'm going to be dealing with uh, that second reading primarily, the 1 Thessalonians 2 reading. And there's an outline on page seven. You could toggle between those two. I've also got a PowerPoint. There is a, an error. I'll say it now so that it doesn't... Actually, now that I tell you, it's going to bug you. I have 1 Thessalonians 1 when it's 1 Thessalonians 2 in most of the parts of the text. So when you see that, just let it go, like a, like a river coming past you. But I do hope that the PowerPoint in particular helps you to look carefully at the passage, uh, because we believe that this passage is uh, something from our Lord to us. Let's pray. Father, we seek your will now, not our own. We seek change in your power, not in our own power. We ask for deep conviction, uh, a deeper endurance. We pray this in the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. At Fort, at Fort Street Primary School, right up here on the hill, between our two churches, at Fort Street Primary School, there's a memorial and it was erected after World War II, and it's a war memorial. It's a stained glass window to the men and women who served and died in two world wars. And it simply says there, in that, that flag above there, it says, greater love hath no man. When it was erected, I doubt there would have been a citizen in Australia who couldn't finish the sentence. Jesus said those words on the eve of his death. He said it to his friends. Greater love, he said, hath no man. How does it go? Greater love has no one that he laid down his life. 
for his friends. Today is Anzac Day, where we recall the endurance of many people who gave up their lives for their friends and for us. So much loss and suffering and pain, lest we forget. Most likely, we will never know the same suffering. We'll have suffering, but not the same suffering. And it's because they did suffer that we won't suffer in the same way. As I said before, we'll leave the formalities to Anzac Day services, but I wanted to begin our teaching today in that idea that we're looking for endurance, a deeper endurance. Indeed, our passage today has embedded into it endurance in suffering. In verse 14, for you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which in Christ Jesus, you suffered. You suffered writes Paul, and so did we, says Paul, and so did God's churches in Judea, says Paul, and so did Jesus, writes Paul. This, of course, is the background of the whole letter of 1 Thessalonians that we're studying for eight weeks. This is the third week. Paul had been in Thessalonica in the northern part of Greece for a short time. We know that from Acts 17. There he reasoned with people, because that's the only weapon Christians have, no manipulation, no coercion, no force ever. Paul reasoned with people and he told them the gospel, the message that Jesus Christ is now God's Messiah. And he told them from the scripture that, that the Messiah had to suffer, he had to die, he had to rise from the dead, and that this particular suffering Jew was now in charge of the world. And some believed, including, we're told, a few prominent women. But the message, as it was preached across the world, the known world then, challenged the status quo. It meant that leaders in Jerusalem, for example, were in the wrong. It meant that that the Thessalonian Christians believed that someone else was Lord, not Caesar. It meant that they didn't bow down to their deities, and that That bothered the status quo, the leadership in the world then. Dr. Tim Keller in uh, New York City compares that age to this age. He did this in a Facebook post this week. He compares the Roman Empire, you Christians are too exclusive, you threaten the social order because you won't honour all deities, all gods. But he goes on, in the modern West... You Christians are too exclusive. You threaten the social order because you won't honour all identities. Isn't that profound? In other words, there's pressure on us too. No, uh, we're not being torched, thrown to lions, but there's pressure on us too and for different reasons. Those new believers formed a church, but Paul was persecuted and then forced to leave pretty quickly, and as he headed south from Thessalonica, he didn't know if the new Christians had been bullied out of their faith. He didn't know if his labor was in vain, the agony. Next week, we'll get to the heart of the agony that he felt. Remember, 1 Thessalonians is a letter for us, but not originally to us. It is a word from God. It's a simple letter, but a profound word, And it is one of the earliest glimpses into the life of the earliest church. I say that because it was written well before the Gospels. 
and written well before Acts. But you can see when you read this letter, it'll only take you 20 minutes to read it, you can see what the earliest reconstructed by the gospel life looks like. So three questions today if you're following the outline. What miracle happened in the life of these new believers? How did the miracle come? And what about us? What about our future? Firstly, what miracle happened in the life of these new believers? Well, the primary miracle was outlined in chapter 1. They became Christians, and that's a miracle. To become a follower of Jesus, to find yourself in Christ is an activity of God. It's a miracle that anybody should be forgiven for their sins and given a new heart. They became deeper disciples. We read that story in chapter 1, verse 9, how they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son, the Messiah, from heaven, whom God raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. That's the miracle. They became fully followers of Jesus, not just admirers. Plenty of admirers in the world today. Jesus needs no more admirers. By the way, you might think to yourself, am I an admirer? I like the idea of Jesus. I think He's got good values. He's probably one of the one of the good people in the world. Remember what Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard said on mere admiration of Jesus. He said that person renounces nothing. He will not reconstruct his life. He will not let his life express what he supposedly admires, not so the follower. These early Christians, they were willing to suffer and to reconstruct their lives. But there were two sub-miracles. First one is the miracle of hearing the voice of God, chapter 2, verse 13. The mir miracle is this, that when they heard the vocal chords of Paul, they picked, they picked it. They were hearing God's message, not Paul's voice, not Paul's vocal chords, not Paul's syntax and grammar. He says it in verse 13, and we also thank God continually because when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, and we're humans, but as it actually is, the Word of God, which is at work in you who believe. Now, let's make sure we understand that paragraph. You might like to look at the screen as I highlight various parts. Firstly, the we in the sentence is Paul, Silas, and Timothy we know that from chapter 1, verse 1. We, he says, thank God continually for the thing God did. That's why I'm calling it a miracle. God did it. Why? Well, the because tells you why we thank God continually, namely, that when you received the Word of God, that is, the moment you became followers of Jesus Christ, when you received the Word of God, meaning the gospel that Paul preached when you heard it from us that the crucified Jesus is now the King of the universe, the one who loved me, knows me, and saved me from the wrath to come, chapter 1, verse 9, when they welcomed that message, they recognized something deeper, something profound. You accepted it, not as a human word, but as it actually is the Word of God. We didn't make it up. 
Paul were writing Galatians. Paul was blindsided, like I was, and I'll tell you about that in a few moments' time. Not the same way, you be pleased. I didn't get struck by light, but, well, a kind of light. That's the miracle. You didn't say, Paul's an interesting fellow, isn't he? He's got a, an interesting message. That TED talk we heard from him was interesting, and he had good PowerPoint. Did Paul? No, they didn't say that. They didn't say he was eloquent or a smart or a wise person. They accepted it as God's voice, his message. And even more, this word is indeed at work in you who believe, reconstructing a life according to the gospel as you follow Jesus. Paul is outlining here how God works in a life. God touches hearts as words are spoken about Jesus, and He transforms people. He reconstructs lives. I know that there's been a few moments in my life when I responded to the call of God. There's one particular one that many of you know, because uh, I've talked about it before. I was at the University of Sydney in a lecture, and uh, Robert Forsyth, who's now my, my co-worker, I'm his boss, seems very strange to me. About 30 years ago, I heard a sermon. It's just an average one, like the one you're hearing now. He probably doesn't remember it. Is he here in the room? Probably doesn't remember it. He may or may not. He could probably dig it up from his filing cabinet. But at the end of it, of course, I was deeply struck by the grace of God. And as I walked out, I said to my friends, you know, how'd you find that? And they're like, you know, it was okay. I'm like, were you in the same room as me? I heard the voice of God. I didn't hear Rob's voice. Not as audible sounds, but rather a word from the Spirit of God pressing into my life. Believe this. I deeply believe that God, the gospel transforms lives. I also believe that the Bible itself is from God. Now, that's a complex thing to say, and we've explored it in other sermons, and I can show you where they are on the, on the podcast. But the authority of the prophets and the apostles leads me to believe that this writing, these, this library, it was wonderful, by the way, to do a Bible study with the homeless last Tuesday and inform them that there are 66 little books in this library called the Bible. And I said to them, you know what, as a homeless person, you can take one of these Bibles, put it in your pack, and you can explain to people that you've got a library in your bag. These writings from God are, these writings are from God. That miraculously, as I read a letter like 1 Thessalonians, it's a letter not to me, but for me, that God is speaking to us. God is speaking to me. Tim Chester, a uh, pastor in the United Kingdom on how God speaks in the Bible. The more we instill the Bible in our heart, mind, soul, and bloodstream, the harder we will find it to sin comfortably. God will be at work. The Bible enlivens our conscience and drives us back to God in repentance and a longing to live as it pleases him. Charles Spurgeon, on how God uses the Bible over time to mature us, he writes, nobody ever outgrows Scripture. The, Bible, the book widens and deepens with our years. If that's not your experience, by the way, I'd love to pray with you. In fact, there's a group that would love to pray with you. Is that true? Peter and Joe, 
We were at a meeting on Tuesday. I was at that meeting. If you find that the Bible doesn't widen and deepen with your years, or for any other reason today, Joe, Peter and I will be up the back. And Emma, I think. Is that right? Maybe. We'll be up the back to pray with you. We'd like to do that. You say, but there are parts of the Bible I hate. I don't like them. Well, that's because you're relating to a real God, a real person, if I can put it this way, who doesn't agree with you on everything. Again, Tim Keller writes very insightfully, to stay away from Christianity, because part of the Bible's teaching is offensive to you, assumes that if there is a God, that he wouldn't have any views that upset you. He's going to contradict you. If you don't trust the Bible enough to let it challenge and correct your thinking, how could you ever have a personal relationship with God? You're just reading the Bible to find out how it fits in with your own will. In any truly personal relationship, the other person has to be able to contradict you. In other words, as you interact with the Bible, God speaks and He'll deconstruct your life before He'll reconstruct it. That's why the Apostle Paul uses language like dying first and being made alive with Christ even as we live. Let me let Charles Spurgeon from the 19th century have the last word. Defend the Bible? I would as soon defend a lion. Unchain it and it will defend itself. When you heard the word, you heard God's message. The second miracle is the miracle of endurance in suffering. You'll see on, on uh, page 6, in verse 14, for you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same things those churches suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. In other words, they could have caved in, but they didn't. In a world where we pursue pleasure and eschew pain, many cave in. A little bit of pressure, you're out the door. I'll save my skin first. Why make life hard? Why not make it just a little bit easier? But they didn't cave in. They didn't have much time, by the way, to be solid in the faith either. either. They were pagans serving idols. They heard the gospel and turned to God. That's a miracle. And within weeks, they were being tested deeply. Within weeks, not just pressure like we experience, but the threat of death by the status quo. And God had a work in them, and that's why I'm calling it a miracle. So how then did the miracle come? It came by, well, God at work. But I want to break apart two things that I believe are here in this text. The first one explicitly, and the second one implicitly. Jesus as example and Jesus as Saviour. Let's get back to the, those two verses there. And again, look up at the screen. I want to point out a few things to you along the way. He writes, and I'll read it out again. For you, sisters, brothers, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, that's Jerusalem, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people, uh, the same things those churches suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. Now, that's a mouthful. But in that sentence, Paul is saying that we are modelling others, you're modelling us, we're all modelling Jesus and indeed the prophets. You didn't just hear a message and say, 
that sounds like a good idea. You didn't just hear a message and think, oh, that'll be good for Western society when it comes along. Keep our Australia together. You believed it and figured out who to follow, suffering people, who to imitate Jesus Christ. So look at this. You became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. They suffered, those churches, and indeed, you suffered. The your own people and the Jews here is not anti-Semitic. Indeed, Paul, who wrote this, is Jewish. Jesus is, of course, the Jewish Messiah for the world. These words are code for the Jewish leaders, as they are in the Gospels, who seek to protect the status quo. So you suffered from your own people, the same things those churches suffered from the Jews, and writes Paul, that's what happened to Jesus and the prophets and us, the leaders who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and also drove us out as well. In other words, as Jesus said, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If the world puts pressure on you, keep in mind that it put pressure on me first. It's good enough for the master, it's good enough for the, the friend. The upshot of it is, if you get or feel pressure to give up Christ or to be embarrassed, don't. It's part of the deal. Jesus told us it was part of the deal. You're embarrassed to be Christian, you're afraid to speak up. In those moments, you'll want to give something up. I say, give up the embarrassment rather than giving up Christ. Give up the fear rather than giving up Christ. It'll be a miracle, so you might as well pray for it. Jesus said, the one who stands firm till the end will be saved, which is why our first two songs today, one that we sang and the one that was sung for us, are songs that prepare people for dying, for death. You might think that's macabre, but I don't know about you, but I want to die a follower of Jesus. I don't want to be derailed at some point along the way. It's interesting the Bible doesn't really call on Christians to become heroes. Jesus calls on us to resist the pressure to cave, to simply stay standing at the end, to abide in Him. Jesus as example, one who suffers. We follow His example. We imitate Him. And secondly, implicitly, Jesus as Saviour. The last few sentences of this passage are about the judgment of God. They displease God, these people who are putting pressure on you. They're hostile to everyone in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles that they may be saved. That's a miracle. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. And the wrath of God has come upon them at last. Now, there's so much, again, embedded in these two sentences. Suffice to say, it's important to point out that you can indeed displease God. <gasps> Did you realize? I thought I was just a good person and God agreed with me. Surely He would. I'm a person with values. Believe in the Australian ideas, fairness, and now equity. 
Surely he's not displeased with me. But it's possible to displease God by opposing what he's doing. Did you know that? This, of course, makes God a personal God, not just a force. One above us who has opinions. You've got to find out a will. Thy will be done, not my will be done. A way to please him and indeed to displease him. And it can make you a contrary person, hostile to everyone, especially in your efforts to censure talk of salvation in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they, they too may be saved. And lastly then, this is then the promise is, or the, the comfort actually, is that the wrath of God will come upon them. In this way, they heap up their sins to the limit, writes the Apostle, and in keeping with all Scriptures, Old and New Testament, the wrath of God has come upon those who oppose Him at last. That last sentence is interesting. What's He talking about? It has come upon them. Is He talking about something that's happened in the past? And Paul could say, look, the wrath of God has come upon them. Or is it about a future moment? He's leaning into a future moment when God will judge the living and the dead. We say it in the Creed that we believe that Jesus will come again in glory as Messiah to judge the living and the dead, and His kingdom will have no end. Probably it's the latter, but I'll leave that to the theologians. Paul is saying, you can stand firm, knowing that God's justice will come on those opposing you, they won't win. But this passage here is about the wrath of God on those who oppose God. But this didn't make them arrogant, a reconstructed life. This, in fact, made them humble. I'll tell you why. Because they too were once opposed to God. They too had the wrath of God coming upon them. You see, the message that they heard was this, that Jesus has taken the wrath of God away from you. That's why Jesus died. He took the darkness of judgment to give you the light of salvation, to rescue them, the Thessalonian new Christians, from the coming wrath. Greater love hath no man, then he laid down his life for his friends. You see, they hadn't figured out as they go along that they could look down on those who oppose God. They too had turned to God from idols to serve the true and living God. He is the God of second chances. And to wait for his Messiah from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who, here it is, rescues us from the coming wrath. That's their testimony, and it humbled them. It's the reason they heard the voice of God, the news was good. It's the reason why they endured such suffering, the prize was worth it. What then about our future? I want to close with some questions that you might like to ask yourself. First, will you pay attention when the gospel is being preached, sitting forward? in your hearts? Are you able to recognize the voice of God in the gospel being preached, even if those who speak are boring or flat or uninteresting? They shouldn't be, of course, but God still speaks even in ordinary messengers. But this is not about sermons either, because we sow into each other's lives with that same gospel. Are you willing then to reconstruct your life based on this gospel? finding the things that you find hard and submitting to God. I call it yielding the flesh to the Spirit. 
or rather the apostle does. It's not easy, but it's our task to find out what pleases the Lord. There's your life quest. I've given it to you. What am I going to do with my life? Ephesians 5 verse 10, find out what pleases the Lord. Are you willing to attend to the prophets and the apostles, believing what they say? Going to a community group and not just sharing your thoughts on a matter, but showing where you got it from in the Bible. Are you willing to imitate Jesus who suffered, willing to give up your life? The writer of Hebrews said, you didn't love your life so much as to shrink from death. That we imitate, indeed, the persecuted church then and now. More people being persecuted for faith now than ever before. Those whose faith is sometimes even quickened or enlivened by suffering, it's a miracle. Google the words, open doors. Here's a beautiful rabbit hole to go down. Are you willing to choose a deeper endurance to stay Christian till the end and committed to the cause of the gospel, to sow into the lives of others like Paul did for them? And are you willing to accept the gospel itself, that God's got you back? We want to pray with you this morning that He loves you and that He saved you indeed from the wrath to come and showered upon you His grace. It's a miracle. Let's pray. Father, we believe, we believe in miracles. We believe first in the miracle of existence, that there is something and not nothing. One could, one could say that everything after existence is a sub-miracle. We exist by your hand. You created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. We believe in the miracle that you have interacted with our world, that you have spoken we believe the miracle that people, even sitting in this room this morning, can walk out of here having said that they've heard your voice, even as the person next to them heard nothing but more words. We believe in that miracle. We believe in the miracle of incarnation, that Jesus Christ came, that he lived the life that we should have lived and died the death that we deserve. We believe in the miracle of forgiveness. We don't deserve it. And yet you showered upon us your grace. We believe in the miracle of grace. And we believe in the miracle of life beyond death because of Jesus' resurrection. That we trust that miracle so that we can remain standing even under death, even under the pressure. We believe in the miracle of hope now and the miracle of hope beyond death. And we believe in the miracle that we can hear King Jesus right now say soon and very soon, my King is coming, robed in righteousness and crowned with love. When I see Him, I shall be made like Him. Soon and very soon, give us this heart, this hope, for Christ's sake. Amen.